We're going to meet uh, this uh, spring uh, and talk about, uh, talk about eschatology, talk about the last things. We're going to walk through some um, interesting topics uh, related to uh, the second coming and the signs leading up to the second coming and, and so on. Well, let's pray together. If you haven't had um, an outline, I guess we should put them on both doors, but they're at this side here, if you, if you haven't got an outline for tonight's lesson. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come uh, into your presence tonight. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change. You are unchangeable. And we thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for justification. Thank you for the knowledge and certainty that our Lord Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and hell and the grave and Satan and is coming again in power and glory. We ask for your blessing as we meet together this spring, as we study these uh, topics together, and uh, pray, Lord, that uh, these truths might conform us more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in uh, Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you look at your outline, let's turn to page 2. Let's remind ourselves, first of all, of some basic uh, preliminaries. First of all, the word um, eschatology, uh, made up, of course, of two words, uh, eschaton and logos. It, this, is a, this is a word or an account about what comes last. Um, we talk in theology about the study of first things. This is the study of last things. But this word, uh, eschatology, and I won't spend too much time here, but um, this word is used in, in different ways, and more recently, certainly within the last um, 50 or 60 years, but in the 20th century, this word has taken on a, a slightly different nuance from what it was once uh, intended to convey, and if you're simply studying, say, a systematic theology by Louis Burkhoff or a 19th century text by Hodge or some, some, someone like that or reading the Puritans, um, the, the word today has a slightly different nuance to it. Uh, in the past, and this is a perfectly valid uh, understanding of eschatology, in the past when you talked about eschatology, you were really talking about the second coming of Christ. And those events, and I, I refer to them here as the constellation of events that surround the second coming. Uh, things like the future of Israel, things like um, whether, whether there's a, 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 a faith on the earth when Jesus comes, um, the, the whole issue of the millennium in Revelation 20, the thousand years, is that something before Jesus comes? Is it something after Jesus comes? And so on. But 
in the past, when we talked about eschatology, the focus was almost exclusively on the second coming. Today, the word eschatology is used in a much broader sense to, to bring into consideration the fact that the end, in a sense, has already begun. The way in which the New Testament, for example, talks about the fact that following the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit in the day of Pentecost, we are living in the last days. So there were, there's a period of, of history and then there's the last days. And, and in a sense, the end has already pufferated into the now. So, so we are already, as it were, living in the aura of and expectation of the end. Uh, the way in which in the Gospels, for example, you have this ambivalence about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. So on Sunday mornings in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, as though it's still more or less in the future, and it needs to come. But there's a sense in the Gospels in which the kingdom has come. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then is the kingdom of God among you. Text like that. So, so there's a sense in which the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. There's a now and a not yet. And the fact that the not yet has already pufferated into the now forces us to, to make a decision. The word eschatology is used in that sort of connection a, a lot today. Uh, number two, the broad theme of eschatology is God's purpose of renewing and perfecting creation. So, and, and this is important, what happens in the end is perfecting what you see at the very beginning. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. And the whole purposes of God, the entire purpose of God in redemption is to restore what was broken by the fall. So you have, for example, in Romans 8, uh, from verses sort of 20, 21, 22, 23 onwards, there, the whole creation groans and travails in birth, waiting for the renewal of all things. So, so there's a sense in which the purposes of God in sending Christ has as its big picture the renewal of the cosmos itself. So what do you have in Revelation 21 and 22? A new heavens and a new earth. It's that vision uh, that closes uh, the final two chapters of well, I say Isaiah, and you say Isaiah, but Isaiah 65 and 66, the new heavens and new earth. Um, Second Peter 3 picks up that language. Revelation 21 and 22 um, explore that in all of its fullness. Now, um, th that's the big picture of eschatology. The detailed picture includes 
a story of salvation, the coming of the kingdom of God, and the second coming with all of its attendant constellation of accompanying events. That's a complicated sentence, but, but there's a big picture, and then there's a, like a detailed picture, which includes the second coming and everything leading up to it. Uh, thirdly, and again, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but theologically and systematically, and we've been looking at a, at, a, at a scheme of doctrine for the last three years. Eschatology is important because it brings together, it helps to unify the message of the Bible. What is promised in the beginning is fulfilled in the end. There are promises made and there are promises kept. And eschatology is about keeping those promises. So it's important theologically in helping us to understand the unity of the Bible. The unity of God's purpose. It also helps us to understand the very nature of the Christian life. Not only is this true objectively, but it's also true subjectively as to who we are. Because we too are caught up in that tension between the now and the not yet. Now, John says, we are the sons of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. We are already sons of God. We are already inheritors. We are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there's more to come. So, so we too, as well as the cosmic picture, the big picture, but it also affects us as Christians. Um, thirdly, the shape of world history. Because what is history? History is a story of two kingdoms. Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And think of Jesus in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Two kingdoms in opposition and one will triumph over the other, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. It also tells us, and this is particularly important as Christianity impacts world religions, particularly Eastern religions, and Hinduism would be a great example of it, history in Hinduism is cyclical. You know, in Hinduism, you used to be a, a dog or a cat or a, some, some other living being. And life just goes round and round. It's, it's the theme, of course, of jung, not Jungle Book, um, the circle of life. Uh, the Lion King, right? The, that's the Lion King. That's not a Christian view of history. You know, it comes around, goes around. It's a circle of life. It's, it, that's Eastern. That's Hinduism. Christianity says there's a beginning and there's an end. History is on a track towards a definite goal. There's a definite trajectory that you can be certain about. There's a goal. There's an end point. That's huge. I sound like Donald Trump now. Um, <laughs> I've got to stop saying that. <laughs> Note to self, don't use that phrase. <laughs> um, now, that. Um, let me move on. I've, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Uh, let me move to point five. Uh, 
the, the study of eschatology, especially in its big picture, provides what I want to call, and and what has been called, and, and is called, a theology of hope. A theology of optimism. Are you optimistic about the future? I was at a Q&A just a few weeks ago with uh, R.C. Sproul, and he was on uh, his usual form. And uh, it was one of these things that went out over Google, and, and there were people asking questions over the Internet and so on. Uh, there was also a live audience, but this question came from the Internet from someone. And uh, the question was, are you optimistic about the future? And, and he said, I'm a Calvinist. How could I not be? Because I, I know what the future is. In, in broad strokes, I know what it is. I know who's going to win. I've read the book of Revelation. What is the book of Revelation about? Well, Jesus wins. He will triumph. It's a theology of hope. Yes, there are trials and difficulties and problems and on the personal level. But I know how it will end. I know the big picture. All of Jesus is, Jesus will save all that the Father has given to him. All the elect will be saved. Not one will be left behind. Everyone will be brought in. Not one will be missing. All the details will be fulfilled. Just theology of hope. In the face of false hopes, and and we could expand on this, we we don't have time to expand on this tonight, but in the face of false hopes, like the hope of Marxism, or the hope of uh, materialism, false hopes. Or no hope, as in existentialism, or or the pessimism of much of, uh, or at least the middle period of the 20th century. Now let's talk about the second coming. The parousia. There are three words here, and, and again, we needn't be detained by these, but there are three sort of official New Testament Greek words that are, that are expressive of the second coming. The first is parousia, which is an official royal arrival. I remember waiting for the queen to come to an event in Belfast, and, and we thought... You know, we'd, we'd go, wife and I, and, and the children, and, and she just, well, she just passed by in a car. But it was, it was official, and we went there, and there were lots of people, and all we saw was this. You know, but it was enough. It, it, was, it was her. She was there. It was, it was an official arrival. Parousia. Jesus is going to arrive, and it's going to be the arrival of a royal visitor, a king, a ruler, and he's going to arrive. Uh, the second word is epiphania, epiphany, an appearance. He's going to appear. Where is Jesus now? The human Jesus, the human nature of Jesus. Uh, the Jesus who has a, a head and arms and legs and feet and eyes and ears, that Jesus. Where is he now? He has a divine nature, and his divine nature is everywhere. He's here. But in his human nature, where is he? He's at the right hand of God. He has, uh, well, he has slipped through a fold in space. C.S. Lewis used that metaphor. He's he's somewhere. 
His, his physical body isn't everywhere. But he's going, to, he's going to come again. He's going to appear and you're going to see him. He's going to be visible. We can't see him now. He's hidden from us, from our senses. We can't see him, hear him. But he's going to, well, he's going to appear. Uh, the third word is apocalypsis. Apocalypse, book of Revelation. An uncovering, an unveiling. You've been to a, an art exhibition, sculpture, painting. There's a, there's a curtain or a veil or, or, or cloth or something and, and, and you know, they pull a cord and it, and it kind of falls down, made of silk or something like that, it falls down. And, and, and there's, a, there's an uncovering, an, un, an unveiling. There's just three words uh, the New Testament uses. Uh, we'll skip the second point. Uh, it's just a point about um, the fact that sometimes when the Bible talks about the future, it uses particular, a particular kind of language, what we sometimes refer to as apocalyptic language, language of colors and numbers, and sometimes exaggeration, like a cartoon. We all recognize a genre of a cartoon, political cartoons, cartoons of uh, presidential candidates, for example. Uh, there's one on the, in, uh, there's always a number of them in, say, World Magazine or something like that. And these cartoonists are very clever, and they, 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 they find a particular characteristic, and then they exaggerate it. And uh, sometimes uh, we need to be careful about, about you know, what does a thousand years mean? Well, a thousand means a thousand. It means a thousand, not 999, means a thousand years, exactly. Does it? Or is it, or is it meant to be more, more of a symbol than an actual measurable period of time? Now, uh, number three, and we'll, we'll, we'll pause on this a little. There are all kinds or different kinds or, or many kinds of comings of Christ in the New Testament, not just the second coming. And I have four of them here. And we need to be careful to sort these out, to be sure which, which coming are we referring to here. So let's look at the first one, the coming of Christ and his kingdom in the lifetime of the disciples, the coming of Christ and his kingdom in the lifetime of the disciples. So you have uh, Mark 9 uh, and verse 1. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um, Christ is going to come in his kingdom, in his power, in his, and it's going to be within the lifetime of the disciples. Now, what is this referring to? Well, in a sense, it doesn't really matter what it refers to. It could refer to the transfiguration. It could refer to the, the resurrection and ascension and, and, and Pentecost, for example. It could, could refer to the, the growth of the New Testament church and the expansion of it from, uh, from a, a little group of people in Jerusalem to, to, 
spreading over the whole known world. All of those interpretations are possible, and I'm not concerned now to narrow which one is the correct interpretation, but the point is it's within the lifetime of the disciples. There's a, there's a sense in which Jesus comes, as it were, in his kingdom, in his rule, in his power, in the lifetime of the disciples. Uh, the coming indistinctive acts of judgment and power. Now, we're going to look, and the reference here is Matthew 24. And we're going to spend an entire evening looking at what's called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and then there are some parables in Matthew 25, uh, and Luke 21, and Mark 13. This is the discourse that Jesus gave uh, after they had left the city and crossed over into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus had made a statement about the fact that not one, you know, the disciples had made an observation about the magnificence of Herod's temple. And it was a magnificent building. And if you have a, a study Bible, the Reformation study Bible, if you want to be sure to get into heaven, but if you have the ESV study Bible or something like that, it has this beautiful picture, 3D picture of the temple in Jesus' time. Magnificent building. An architect's dream, I'm sure. So the disciples make this observation about how magnificent this temple was. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left standing upon another. He predicts the fall of the temple, the destruction of the temple. He's talking about A.D. 70, 69, 68, 69, 70, and and the fall of the temple of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and so on. And the disciples asked him, when they get to the Mount of Olives, about this statement that he made. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Now, we're going to unpack all of that in 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 an evening It's way too much to go into here. But I want you to note that in that passage, the disciples asked the question, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? The opening verses of Matthew 24. The sign of your coming. And are they asking about the fall of Jerusalem or are they asking about the second coming? And I think if you ask the disciples... They wouldn't know what you're asking, is my suspicion. Because I think to the disciples, it probably meant one and the same thing. But Jesus' answer divides those two into separate things. One, one, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the other, the second coming. So there's a sense in which the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall, and the, the, the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem was an act of God's judgment, but it was also a coming of Christ, coming in judgment. So, uh, there, are, there are different comings. The third one is the coming at the time of our death. He says in the upper room in John fourteen three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, 
he, he may, that may be a reference to the second coming, but most interpreters interpret this as his coming for us in death. I go to prepare a place for you, and, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Is he talking about the second coming, or is he talking about his coming at the time of our death? Well, actually, I think the answer is yes, because the two are intimately related. Because death is just the ushering in to that final state. Right? So, so the, there, are, there are several ways in the New Testament in which this word coming is used. The predominant sense, and the sense that I want us to unpack now, is the final coming, the second coming. Um, Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven. for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now again, this is Matthew 24, we're going to look at it. There's disagreement about when does Jesus talk about the fall of the temple and when does he talk about the second coming. My own view is by, by verse 37, he's talking about the second coming. Uh, or Revelation 22, 20, and, and there is no dispute about this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is almost the last verse of the book of Revelation. This is almost the way the Bible ends, a reference to the second coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, what are the characteristics of the second coming? In the sense of the fourth sense. And I want to say, um, I think, five things about it. First of all, it is personal. At the time of Jesus' ascension, and we have a record of the ascension of Jesus in the close of Luke's gospel and also in the beginning of chapter 1 of Acts. And in uh, chapter 1 of Acts and verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The disciples have just seen Jesus go up into heaven, into a cloud. Uh, somebody asked the question. Remember we were dealing with this? How, how did he breathe? And I think I answered, low clouds. This was a physical, it was a perfectly good question because, because this is a physical, literal ascension. He goes up. Uh, we talk about people getting promotion and so on in their employment. And, and we say, sometimes we'll say, well, you've gone up in the world. Yes, there's a sense in which he had gone up in the world in the sense that he was now receiving glory. He was being exalted to the right hand of God. He was no longer in a state of humiliation. But he's still incarnate. He still has a human body. A body now prepared for a state of glory, but it is still a human body. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this angelic visitor says to the disciples as they watch Jesus ascending that he's going to 
come again in like manner, personally. Or again, in Matthew 24 and verse 44, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing, his epiphany. Or Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. A second time. He'll appear a second. But he will appear personally. He's coming in person. It'll be physical. The second coming will be Physical. Let's go back to this verse in Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will appear on a cloud. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, describes the second coming as, as, a, as an appearing on a cloud, a glory cloud. Uh, clouds are often associated with, with, with God, the, the pillar of cloud and so on. Just as he went, he'll, he will come again, and it, and it will be physical. He'll appear physically in a body. Now, um, you're going to ask me where, the, where this is going to be. You're going to ask questions like, how will everybody see him? You know, how will people in Australia see him if he appears in, uh, in North America? Or worse still, if he appears in Australia, how will people in North America see him? I, I have no answers to any of these questions, but I believe it will be physical. There will be a, a, a physicality to it. People will see him. And we shouldn't think of this in terms of a, a process by which the human body of Jesus is divinized in some way so that his, his physical body can appear in multiple places at the same time. But it's important for us to remember that Jesus still has a human body in union with a divine nature. Right? He has a human body and a human soul. And he will come physically. Um, thirdly, it will be visible. We've already looked at, uh, mentioned these texts, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And he will appear a second time. You'll see him. And it'll be sudden. Sudden. 
Now, this is part of uh, the teaching, especially of the latter part of Matthew 24, and then some, some teaching in Matthew 25. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is First Thessalonians 5, uh, 2 through 8. And, and similar teaching, as I said, in the closing section of Matthew 24. Like a thief in the night. Well, does that mean... Does that mean that the second coming um, is, um, c- can happen um, you know, in the next five seconds? Four, three, two, one. Is that, is that what it means? That Jesus can come at any moment? Well, if there are certain things that must happen before Jesus comes, let's take an example Supposing, supposing you were to interpret, say, Romans eleven twenty six, and all Israel shall be saved, and and you might interpret that as, say, many of the Puritans interpreted that that a certain number of Jews, a large number of Jews, um, are going to be converted before Jesus comes. In in that final generation or two before Jesus comes, there's going to be a like a mass conversion of of Jews to Christ. Many of the Puritans believed that. I'm not saying that's the correct interpretation of Romans 11:26, but if you if you were to hold that interpretation, then Jesus can't come in the next five seconds or five hours, for that matter. There are certain things that must happen first. What about, for example, the gospel must be preached in all the world? John Piper and a new sort of conference that has begun in the last few years given to that particular text that the gospel must be preached to all the known people groups of the world before Jesus comes and there are some and there's a number and I forget the number but 6,000 I'm going to make up a number 6,342 people groups that have yet to be reached by the gospel it's a number like that so before Jesus comes that has to be fulfilled and some people believe that that has to be fulfilled literally and again I'm not saying that that is the right interpretation but if if that is a valid interpretation, Jesus can't come in the next five seconds. So, so it's not imminent. The view of the imminent return of Jesus is a view that, that is a fairly recent view and, and part of a dispensational view in which, in which the second coming of Jesus is in two stages. And, and the first, sometimes called the secret rapture, Jesus can come at any minute. You can be driving down the road and the person in front of you is gone. He's been raptured. It's not a good thing if that happens. I actually don't believe the Bible teaches that. 
Right? But there are thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who actually believe that. Jesus comes for the saints, but he doesn't come all the way down to earth. He comes to the clouds, raptures the saints, and goes away. And then he comes again, according to some, after seven years. And then he comes all the way down to the earth. But it's a two-stage second coming. A secret rapture, any moment, and then a second part that's much more predictable. So, so when we say sudden, what do we, what do we mean? What do, what do I think the Bible means when it talks about the suddenness of the second coming? I don't think it means at any moment. But it does mean impending. It could happen within our lifetime. If, if there is one prophecy, if there's just one prophecy that must be fulfilled before Jesus comes, that prophecy, whatever it is, right, and, and there are a dozen or more that one could think of that, that would fit that, this must happen before Jesus comes. What, whatever that is can happen within your lifetime. Well, less likely for some of you, but... but It could happen within a generation. Let me put it that way. It is impending rather than imminent. It is impending rather than it could happen right now. Either way, we need to be ready. If you actually thought that Jesus would come again within your lifetime, Randolph Shives isn't here. He wouldn't like just to hear this because he'd be out of the business. But, but you understand, if Jesus is coming again in a lifetime, you can forget the, the, the policy. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. <laughs> keep that policy. Keep paying it. That's not what I'm saying. But, but I am saying we should live our lives with the thought that it is possible. It is possible. We could be the final generation. I'm not predicting that. I'm not a prophet or a son of, of a prophet. I, I'm not, but, but I am saying we should live our lives with our bags packed and ready to go. What a marvelous thing it would be. What a wonderful thing it would be if we were part of that generation that never died. That would just be taken up to heaven. There'd be no funeral. Nobody would weep. There'd be no tears. That'd be rather fun, don't you think? That's, some, that's, that's something to sort of look forward to. There is a generation that will experience that. It may be ours, it may be our children's, maybe our grandchildren's. It may be a thousand, two thousand years off. I have no idea. Um, it'll be triumphant. Triumphant. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an, an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the second coming. Now, if you believe in a two-stage second coming, the first part, the secret rapture part, is, well, it's quiet. It's secret. Whatever has been spoken of here in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 is not secret. Actually, it's pretty loud. You ever listen to a symphony? A hundred players. 
you'll always hear a trumpet. A trumpet is incapable of playing quietly. I remember being at a, a, an, an orchestra rehearsal. Uh, it was the Ulster Orchestra. And uh, uh, the conductor had an ego, as many of them do. And, um, and, and this was not a good day for him. And I was sitting up in the balcony. And uh, the brass section, when, you know, they're sometimes notorious. Are the brass players here tonight? And he just let go at this brass section because they were too loud. And he tried to get them to play quietly. They were incapable of playing quietly. Because a trumpet is loud. It pierces over every other instrument. You're going to hear it. If you want in a, in a symphony, if you want to make you know, a, a, a real moment, you're going to have trumpets playing. Off stage, trumpets, trumpets up in the balcony somewhere. But there are always memorable moments in, in, a, in a symphony. Well, the second coming is the loudest event you can imagine. It's a noisy event. The dead in Christ are going to be raised. These graves, earth is going to move. Gravestones are going to topple. People are going to rise from the dead. This is a noisy event, a triumphant event. Because it will signal the triumph of King Jesus. All for whom he died. All for whom he shed his blood. All for whom he paid the ransom price. And he's going to be victorious. Like a, like a victorious king coming for the booty of, his, of, his, of his, the spoils of his victory. Now, there are several questions that remain, lots of questions that remain, and we'll take them up uh, in the course of uh, this uh, spring. You know, is it a single or a twofold coming in the whole business of the secret rapture and so on? And we'll, we'll have a look at that uh, at, at the appropriate time. Uh, another question, what will be the circumstances on earth when Jesus comes? Will there be faith on the earth? And premillennials and postmillennials and amillennials answer that question differently. And I'm going to have to tread sort of carefully here because we've got all three in the room. Only one of us is right. <laughs> but all three of us are in the room. And we're going to, we're going to explore that. And because that's such a, an interesting and fascinating, and I don't want to explore this in a, in a triumphalist way. I, I, I want to explore what these three views are. Uh, and in order to give us some time to do that, we're going to look at the, each one separately and, and, and give each one a, f a fair sort of hearing. You can draw your own conclusions. Uh, can the second coming be predicted? It's amazing. One of the last things Jesus says. Do not, you know, of that day and hour, no man knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. Can you predict the second coming? Well, we're going to ask that question. Books, you know, books by the truckload have been written predicting the second coming is going to be on such and such a date. Harold Camping and others predicted a certain day, and then when that day passed, another day. And then when that 
day past another day. Is the second coming to be expected at any moment and so on? Well, my final point for tonight. The second coming is about the coming of Jesus. Let me put it in a different way. The second coming is about him. It's not the dates. It's not the peripherals. It's him. What is the focus of the second coming? It is Jesus. It's him. It's his triumph. It's his return. This Jesus is coming again. The Jesus that just ascended. This Jesus is coming again. This very same Jesus. It's all about him. And it's important, I think, especially in eschatology. People get all worked up. People get all head up. They get very animated. Christians get very animated. Blogs get very animated about issues of eschatology. And sometimes you miss the whole point of it. It's about him. It's about his triumph and his glory. Uh, there are going to be questions, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and, and allow for questions at the end of, of each section, though not tonight. <laughs> but I am going to try and let you ask questions at the end of each section. But at the very end of our study in April, we're going to run through three months, as we always do, uh, February, March, and April. But the last one will be a Q&A session. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you. Thank you that our Lord Jesus is coming again, this very same Jesus who, who died and who rose again and who ascended uh, to the right hand of God is coming again in power and glory. We thank you that we are in union with him. We cannot be separated from him. And his triumph and his glory will mean our triumph and glory too. We thank you for the certainty that the future affords, the hope that it affords, and that we can live with that expectation before us, help it to sober us, give us purpose for meaning and life, to get up every morning, and to live and labor and work for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.